Hello and welcome to our podcast. We hope it encourages and inspires you. Please head to our website for more information on what is happening at Ashburton New Life or to get in touch. One of our team would love to talk to you. Here's today's message. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. As you probably know, I'm Dave, Cassie's husband, father yep. of three, board game addict. <laughs> and today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this guy I know called Jesus. But I mean, you know him, right? Mary's boy, second person of the Trinity, died for us and stuff. It's pretty familiar territory. Yeah. Easy as I thought. Then uh, turns out the Jesus I know today is not quite the same as the Jesus I knew, say, 10 years ago. Wow. It's quite different from the Jesus I knew way back as a Catholic schoolboy. As it turns out, getting to know someone is a lifelong journey. Good. Yes. Two weeks ago, Cass and I had our 17th wedding anniversary. Yes. And we're still finding out new stuff about each other. Just a couple of years ago, she went out and got me some apricots because she knew I loved apricots. No. <laughs> I hate apricots. <laughs> I had to inform her that actually apricot chicken pizza is not the same flavour as apricots. <laughs> and I've taught my English teacher wife a couple of new words over the years, like fisticuffs, she hadn't heard that one before. And uh, more recently, fartsack, which on my side of the family is what you might refer to your beard as. <laughs> Just last month, I learned that when she was little, she was a girl guy. She's got a blanket and all with badges and stuff. And she learned that when I was little, I used to sneak off to the cow shed and eat Tuck's dog biscuits. <laughs> you know, dip them in the molasses barrel. <laughs> so, you can tell which of us is the sophisticated one. <laughs> the point is, there's always more to learn about someone. Now, as, as a Christian, you can get to know Jesus much in the way you can learn about anybody else. Spend time with him. Pray. Share your life with him. And listen for the ways in which he might be speaking to you. But as I said, I've known some different Jesuses over the years. So if you could do something for me now. If you could try and imagine the Jesus that you know. Try and picture it. Close your eyes if that's helpful for you. But just, what is he wearing? What kind of tone of voice would he use? What's the expression on his face? What nationality is he for that matter? Or is he more of a sort of a luminous being of light? There's quite a lot of variations really. Here's some common examples that came to my mind when I thought about this. Jesus the Saviour. This is the Jesus that I remember during communion, the one who died for us. I'm deeply grateful for this Jesus. But if getting a ticket to the afterlife was all our faith was about, then the Gospels would record sinless birth, sinless death, resurrection, done. And there's more to it than that. What about this next one? The buddy Jesus. <laughs> Need an ark? No, God. This, this guy casually cheers me on when I've got some self-doubt or I'm stressing out over something way too much. Seen a lot of him this week. <laughs> he doesn't ask a whole lot of me. He just really wants me to know that he's got, me, got my back, you know? Maybe some of you pictured this next one. The wise Jesus. Cool, collected, never gets his feathers too ruffled. He's always ready to dish out some simple and profound truth to blow your mind and answer your questions. Or the cosmic Jesus. The Alpha, the Omega. The first and the last. This is the Word of God who spoke the universe itself into being. Almighty, all-powerful. 
Whenever I meet with this Jesus in my prayers, I want to fall to my knees in fearful awe of him. He's so far beyond me in my comprehension. And I feel like he is or he should be kind of aloof and care a little less about my insignificant existence. He's way different from the baby Jesus. But maybe he's a little bit related to this next one. Jesus the judge. Sitting on the throne, utterly perfect. Exposing me of my flaws. This guy has me aware of my unworthiness while also, you know, allowing me to escape my just punishment through the concession of his own sacrifice. I'm really grateful to that. But I can't escape that feeling that I'll never quite meet his standards. It's quite familiar to the Catholic in me. My current favourite one is the Good Shepherd, the Ideal Dad, Jesus. This Jesus is bigger and stronger and wiser than me by far. Like a superhero, but he's the perfect dad. He's patient, he's kind, he's never angry. And he has a plan for me and wants to lead me through it with him, working alongside him. Not because he needs my help, but because he just loves me and wants to teach me stuff. You probably didn't picture the next one. The genie Jesus. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, I've actually thought of Jesus like this before. You know, if I just pray the prayer of Jabez enough, or declare the right things, or have the right kind of faith, then all those desires for health, wealth, and prosperity will just flood into my life. <laughs> and this last one, the rebel Jesus. Someone asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them, flipping over the table and breaking out a whip, that's a possibility. <laughs> this guy doesn't actually spring to my mind when I think about Jesus. But the Gospels record this happening. And I believe his growing reputation as a rebel rouser contributed to him being sentenced to death. This is Jesus the activist. It's pretty different from those other ones. Now that's just a few examples. I'm sure you can think of more of them. And I don't actually think any of them are completely wrong. There's some truth to all of them. Maybe some more than others. But I do tend to gloss over this last one. I'm less comfortable with him. But is it right to pick and choose our Jesus? <laughs> Getting to know Jesus relationally is beautiful and impactful. But if I get really busy in my life and fall into that trap of just going to God when I need some comfort or aid, then the Jesus who meets me in those moments is only part of the picture. And when I see only part of the picture, my idea of who he is can get a little skewed. I can then wind up kind of creating God in my image. So it's worth trying to see who Jesus is in another way, by examining the Gospels. Like my relationship with Cassie, there's always more to learn about Jesus. And the Gospels are rich and detailed. Every time I read them or read what others have learned from them, I get fresh revelations about who he is and what he has to offer us and ask of us. Just recently, I was struck with how humble our God is. At the start of John's Gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now this is Jesus, the Word of God who created the universe. God Almighty who witnessed the fall of his creation when sin entered the world through humanity's rebellion and then made a covenant promise to rescue humanity and creation from their fate. Now ask yourself though, what would you have done if you had made this wonderful thing, breathed it to life, and then it slapped you in the face, turned its back on you, and become corrupted and full of suffering. Mm. 
I might have just deleted it and started again. I wouldn't have done what God did though. And that was vow to rescue it knowing what it would cost him. And John continues, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. After choosing a people to be the bearers of his covenant promise and shepherding them despite being repeatedly rejected by them, God's plan reaches a stunning turning point where the word of God himself humbles himself and comes down to the world which is so hostile to him. And as you can see from Luke 2 verse 1, the Gospels record when all this happened. Our faith isn't based on some myth, but on something that happened in human history yeah. to the point where we divide our calendar, a, a, BC and AD. We divide it on his coming. Regarding this Jesus, Paul writes, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And Luke records that when he was born, his mother Mary wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him. Now, if I was God, and decided to come down and sort this world out. I might come as a king, you know, taken over Caesar's throne. Or maybe just rocked on up with a few thousand legions of angels and commanded everyone to just live according to my way or be dealt with. But not Jesus. <coughs> he chose to be born, to become a vulnerable child, and not even born to Caesar's household or the high priests. Instead, the word of God Almighty is conceived out of wedlock to a betrothed teenage girl from a poor rural family. And when he's born, the best they can do isn't even a house, it's a stable with a manger in it. And soon after that, the family is forced to become refugees in Egypt, being hunted by King Herod. Now that's humble, even by our standards. So who is this guy of such perfection and power, and yet chooses the humble approach? Sometimes I've wanted Jesus to take the wheel, to overcome my doubts and direct me with a heavier hand. Yet while power can force people into obedience, power cannot compel belief, wow. nor change the hearts and minds of people for the better. You can't usher people into the kingdom of God at the point of a sword or by the decree of government. Wow. So Jesus comes to us humbly. And even the most, the, the ones who feel most unworthy amongst us can know they can approach him. The first words that Jesus speaks in John's Gospel are not, kneel before your God, like some Superman villain. But they are, what do you want? And then, come and see. Jesus invites us to walk with him and discover for ourselves how being part of his kingdom can answer the deep longings of our hearts. Because only love, freely offered and easily ignored, can summon a response of love and rescue us from our fate. As we look a bit further in the Gospels, we see the almighty word of God now but a humble travelling rabbi in first century Palestine. And he does some pretty strange things. He does miracles and he heals people. And he keeps telling them to keep it quiet. He spoons the most rich and righteous of his day and instead goes to hang out with the unclean, the destitute, the sinners. And he does stuff that only God has the authority to do, but remains a bit cagey about his true identity. 
to understand why that might be, it's worth having a quick look at its context. First century Palestine was a place of unrest, even more so than today. The Jewish people had suffered under the brutal Assyrians, been exiled by the Babylonians, returned but under the rule of the Persians, and then oppressed by Egypt, by Greece, by Syria, and now the iron fist of the Roman Empire. They had, as you might expect, fractured into different groups with different responses about how to respond to all of them. Oppression. Two such groups worth mentioning today are the Pharisees and the Zealots. The ever-popular and righteous Pharisees were lay people who believed that if every man, woman, and child would follow the law of Moses for just one day, then God would deliver Israel. So they had created thousands of additional rules for people to follow. Things like, okay, you've got to have two kitchens, one for meat and the other for dairy, just to make sure you can't accidentally boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> These guys even tithed 10% of the herbs growing on their windowsills. They eagerly expected and awaited the Messiah. The Zealots, on the other hand, were freedom fighters, trying to drive away the Roman Empire with guerrilla warfare and rebellions. They would cry, there should be no king at all but God. Twice, while Jesus was growing up, the Zealots had raised these rebellions with their leaders claiming to be the Messiah as a way of gaining followers before they were crushed and crucified. So all the various factions of the day were quite different and divided, but they were all trying to preserve Jewish culture from being undermined and eradicated by the Romans. And all of them hated tax collectors. These guys were seen as thieving traitors, collaborators with Rome who robbed their own people for the Romans. So it was a time of unrest, but also a time of eager expectations the Roman Empire was seen as the last kingdom to fall before God's kingdom would come, as prophesied in the book of Daniel. And the recent earthquakes, the recent false messiahs that keep rising up, and the rebuilding of the temple, and now this prophet, John the Baptist, who was claiming that Messiah was coming right now, and you've got to get ready for it. All this stuff had everyone on edge. But the Messiah they expected was a figure similar to Moses or King David, a royal military and priestly leader. He would be the true king who was going to triumph over evil, which they thought to be the Romans. He would bring justice and set the world to rights. He would fully restore the temple, providing a way for humanity to reconnect with God. And he would uphold the law of Moses and allow people to live together with each other and with God in harmony. And this ultimate king would bring this peace and restoration, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. They were aware of this figure of the suffering servant elsewhere in the prophets and stuff, but they couldn't understand how the true king who would rule an everlasting kingdom could also die. So no one before Jesus had ever combined this figure of the suffering servant with that of the expected Messiah. If Jesus were to tip his hand and announce that he is actually the Messiah that they're waiting for, the crowds would forcibly crown him and rise up in rebellion against Rome trying to establish the kingdom of God as they thought it should be, yeah, right. rather than the kingdom of God planned. Yep. This almost happened. They tried it after he fed the 5,000. As John records, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the Gospels show Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. But because it's totally different from their expectations, he has to use signs and parables and stories to do so. 
one aspect of God's kingdom that just keeps coming up in the Gospels is this idea that the most unworthy are actually the most welcome. And the rich and righteous are the ones who find it hardest to enter. See, the Pharisees were honoured as the godliest of people, yet Jesus judges them vehemently. He calls them a brood of vipers. And he pronounces a series of woes to them and to the teachers of the law. And yet the same Jesus at the start of the Sermon on the Mount pronounces people who are poor, humble, grieved, or persecuted as blessed. Blessed. <laughs> what is so blessed about being poor or humble, persecuted, desperate even? If you remember last week, Pastor Carl preached on how our past is no barrier and our brokenness can't prevent God's plan for us. And he's absolutely right. And I think Jesus takes it further. I think our brokenness qualifies us. It positions us to humbly receive God's grace and enter his kingdom. Jesus in his teaching holds out two powerful truths. First, if you want to earn your way into the kingdom of God, the standard is absolute perfection. Merely following the law or being a good person, but upholding justice and love to the standards set by God. Now the Pharisees believed they were righteous by their own efforts, but they only followed the letter of the law, and they encouraged everybody else to do the same. That's why Jesus says to them that they're like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're just full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Secondly, through Jesus, God offers all-encompassing grace and forgiveness to anybody willing to humbly accept it. To those who can acknowledge their imperfection, their struggles with sin, their fallen and broken state, grace is offered as a free gift, and they are welcomed into God's kingdom with open arms. That's the good news of the gospel. You may not be able to earn your way into the kingdom of God, but neither do you have to. This is clearest in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, <laughs> robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So if you feel broken, or you think you're hopeless or helpless, Congratulations! <laughs> You're not unworthy to God. You're not a lost cause. You are, in fact, most welcome. There is a little bit of a difference, though, between healthy humility and self-condemnation. It's quite a few years ago now, but I used to carry a really deep sense of self-hatred. I was convinced in my bones that I shouldn't even exist. And yet, I didn't even know who I was. No clear sense of identity. Does anybody see the contradiction in that? How can you hate what you don't know? <laughs> the lies of the enemy don't always make sense, hey? but that's how it was for me. That kind of thing might have you on your knees, aware of your sin and asking for forgiveness, but it's not exactly ideal, is it? It's not true humility. Humility isn't desperate to pull other people down so you feel better about yourself. 
and is not convinced that you're a particularly unique kind of worthless. And neither does humility drive you to prove yourself. Humility is about knowing who you are and being at peace with that. And yeah, there might be times when you feel convicted of your sin and you fall to your knees before the cross, but you don't stay there. Like the paralyzed man on the mount, Jesus offers you forgiveness and then helps you back up to your feet. Humility is knowing what you're worth in God's eyes, knowing what you can and cannot do, and then trusting in Him for the rest. I've still got some growing to do in this area. But back in the day, I, I'd be afraid to look Jesus, the judge, in the eyes in my prayer time, convinced I'd see in them the same contempt that I saw in the mirror. These days, I can lift my gaze in prayer, and I see patience, encouragement, and compassion. It might go without saying, but humility is not the same as pride either. Sometimes, when I forget about my own struggles with sin and how much I've been healed and helped, I can start feeling a little prideful. I might think that, you know, with a bit of hard work, I can accomplish anything. Yeah. And it's true, you know, hard work pays off. It's fine, it's awesome. But it's a very small step from there that I can start looking at people less fortunate than myself and thinking, you know, maybe if they tried harder. When I get prideful, I start forgetting about God and relying on my own strength. And I risk becoming a bit self-righteous like that Pharisee. God will send me crises in these moments. I'll have to eat some humble pie and concede again to his lordship. But when I do that, then I'm starting to operate on his strength yeah. and according to his plan. And I find in that space a greater gratitude for the things that I have and more compassion for those of this scripture. There's still a growing edge for me. I've always had a really strong moral compass and a sense of perfection. Growing up in a white, middle-class, well-to-do family as I did, I never really rubbed shoulders with the poor too, too often. The few times I have done, I've had the shadow of that Pharisee just murmuring in my mind about how lucky I am to not be a convict or a gluesniffer on the streets of Christchurch. But then, when I read the Gospels and I meet Jesus in them, I realize that if he would have come back today, as he did then, I'd be as likely to find him in the bars and prisons and darkened streets as here today. Jesus didn't just wait for the lost to come to him. He went and sought them out. Now if Jesus, the almighty word of God, comes down to us humbly, and even today remains vulnerable with us, offering us a grace that cost him the cross, with the freedom to reject it entirely, how much more so should we who call him Lord be humble? Jesus shows us in the Gospels God's kingdom is a place of healing and deliverance, of social justice, provision for the poor, a place where all people are treated with equal dignity and all people may encounter God through the grace of Jesus Christ. If we call Jesus our Lord and Saviour, we are members of that kingdom and we are called not just to share the Gospel, but to clothe the poor, to visit the prisoner, tend to the sick, and uphold the dignity of all, no matter what race or beliefs or standing in society. Amen. Jesus didn't just come to be the cross so that we could be forgiven and have our relationship with God restored. And the gospel isn't just about being saved and then waiting for heaven. Amen. He came to establish God's kingdom on earth, to heal us of our brokenness. And he asks us to partner with him in continuing that good work. 
There's ample opportunities to do this sort of thing. You can donate to World Vision or to Buckets of Policing here at church. You can volunteer with the Salvation Army or Dragon Army or just put your hand up to do the dishes. You can just put your own stuff aside for a second and listen to someone who needs to get something off their chest. You know, whatever you've got to give, whatever you feel drawn to is awesome. But mostly you just need to try and maintain that attitude of healthy humility, remain grateful for what you have, silence that uncomfortable Pharisee, and remain willing to help with whatever need God brings across your path. So, acknowledge your brokenness and your struggles, but don't let them keep you down either. Take them to the cross and allow Jesus to set you back on your feet. It might be a lengthy process, but it is worth it. And remember that being part of God's kingdom isn't just about waiting for heaven. It's about extending the forgiveness, the kindness, and the healing that we have received onto others. And lastly, stay curious to learn more about who Jesus is. Because as I have discovered, there's always more to learn about someone.